Hello, and welcome to another edition of Law Technology Now. My name is Dan Rodriguez, and I'll be the host for today's show. Before we get into our show today and I introduce our special guest, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Acumas. Thanks to our sponsor, Acumas, patent and trademark renewal payments made easy. Find out how Acumas.com can take the stress out of annuities and save you money on European patent validations today. Thanks as well to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at Logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. So I'm delighted to be joined today by my friend Marcus Hartung, who joins us from across the pond, as it were. He's uh, in Germany. He is a prominent lawyer and consultant for law firms. He has been a partner at a leading German law firm and at a global uh, firm and has years of experience in as a lawyer in the legal profession. He's a published author, the number of publications, some with quite arresting titles. One that uh, caught my eye was Managing Partners is Like Herding Cats, or Is It? And uh, is the co-author of a, a leading book that came out in 2018, Legal Tech a Practitioner's Guide. He is the founder of the Busserius Leadership Program, Busserius Law School in Germany, the former director of the Busserius Center on the Legal Profession, and having stepped down from that role is now a senior fellow. And we'll have the opportunity to talk about the, the wonderful Busarius experiment in, uh, in a, little, a little bit. But first, let me uh, formally welcome uh, Marcus to our show. Hey, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's, my, it's my pleasure. So I, I want to take advantage, as it were, of your expertise in a variety of areas and certainly get a European perspective, if I can, if I can call it that, and generalize. Before I do that, I want to sort of pull the, the lens out quite a bit and ask you about legal technology, one one area of your uh, expertise. And if I could take a little bit of an arbitrary timeline, and that that timeline being roughly the last two decades or or, or 25, uh, 25 years, I want to ask you to reflect a bit on what has changed in the space of of legal technology. I'll let you define what you mean by legal tech and and sort of how how things have changed in the couple of decades, give or take, that you've been able to observe the development, the emergence of legal technology? That's an interesting question, actually, because if you look at a time span of 20 years, so many things have happened in law firms. I mean, that was before the financial crisis and following the financial crisis. And I think from 2008, 2009 on, things like legal technology became part of the real life of law firms and legal service providers for companies. Before 2009 or 2008, of course, legal tech was an issue, but only for academics or specialists. It, it, it didn't have any visible market share and it, it, didn't, it didn't catch any attention. This is, of course, different in the United States and in uh, jolly Europe. In Europe, I think it all started in 2013 or so and and then you know the startups dreaming of the hockey stick so at the moment we are sort of picking up the hockey stick with some tools which may have existed years ago but the amount of data and the readiness and cloud computing software which made this technology available all over the place has all contributed to a certain 
prominence of that. But can, actually, I, can I just jump in, yeah. Marcus, and ask what, what's magical about 2013? Because I'm struck by that. You're, you're quite certain about the timeline. Yeah. Focus on your- when we founded the, the, the Center on the Legal Profession, we pretty early on, on 2011, we started to work on, on innovation in law firms. That was a very hot topic. All, all the law firms on their homepages claimed themselves and described themselves as being innovative. And when we looked at these law firms, we had no idea what they really were talking about. And then we did some research and interviews, and then we realized, or we came close to technology, and we realized that innovation on, on, the, on the technology angle is not taking part in law firms, it's taking part out of law firms. And I think for us in the center, we realized in Europe that technology can be a serious game changer that was about 2013 and then 2014 we had one of our yearly conferences where we covered this issue and people were you know like seeing a new blockbusters in the movies and looked at it and realized oh my god there is really something happening things which had been described by Richard Susskind years ago but people had looked at it as a sort of theoretical play not really important for our daily practice, maybe for some specialist law firms or some legal tech nerds, but not in real life. And is, I is think- that, Can I just ask a question that's specific to Europe in that regard, if you don't mind me interrupting, which is, was the skepticism, asking you to speak generally here, among European law firms, leading European law firms, skepticism about the role of technology in law firms generally, or was it something skepticism about the impact of technology in European law firms? You see what I'm getting at? They think, well, U.S. is that's distinct, that's different, that's not what we encountered here. Yeah, in 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 Europe, you have to you have to distinguish between the U.K., which is normally leagues away, and the and the European continent. And the continent, maybe due to the legal system, so not common law jurisdictions. These companies very often look at cases as always being individual cases. There are no standards, there are no patterns, there are no standardized ways of, of practicing, which is one of the preconditions before you can think about technology. Without standardization, technology doesn't make any sense. It's what Saskin memorably described as the move from bespoke legal services, yes. right, to uh, more commodified and standardized legal services. Yeah. And in, I mean, it was pretty unclear and still is today. So what the role of technology is and what the threat of technology can be. I mean, you will have heard that many people, if they are confronted with the term AI, they would attribute all the best and the worst they could think of to AI so that AI can do everything. And people completely overestimate the impact of AI software today. I mean, if you still look at, at all the flaws of what AI software is doing today, be it in the judicial system, be it in face recognition, we are nowhere near that what we think AI could deliver. That might be different in about five to six years, but we look at software and AI in a completely irrational manner. Do you have the headlines in German? I, I don't read or speak German. Do you have the headlines in 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 the German press that sort of versions of what we see in the American press, will robots replace lawyers yes, or robots are going to replace lawyers? Yeah. 
We had it in one of the major German newspapers and they were quoting from an English survey from the University of Oxford. And this study, that was in 2000, may have been either 12 or 13, they looked at which jobs could be replaced by technology. And now comes a language thing. The word or the term job was translated in Germany into profession. And whereas the study had looked at jobs by means of tasks, which could be replaced by technology, the German translation of the study was talking about uh, software replacing professions and not just individual tasks. And of mm. course, that caused a certain stir. And this, this newspaper had a homepage where you could enter your profession and then you got a percentage how likely it would be that your profession, say, be the judge or a lawyer, would be replaced by software. And of course, that is that is not a basis to talk about these things. I mean, this is serious. Technology right. is serious and has serious impact in how we communicate, how we make money, how we, how we interact, how we sell our goods and services. And we look at it like a Hollywood movie. And when we right. look at AI, we are not rational. And I think well, that you is, say you look at it like a Hollywood movie. There, of course, have been Hollywood movies precisely on those on those themes, and that take uh, and yes, pictures of right of robots taking over society and all of that. Yeah, we think there is Arnold Schwarzenegger coming around the corner wearing a black robe and 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 pretending he's a lawyer. But that is sort of childish of looking at how the world changes and how and 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 what digitalization would mean to us and to our profession. And that's a mixture of you know, being anxious and scared and not knowing exactly what is going to happen and hoping it goes away. And today, I think in the majority of lawyers in Europe, people have realized how important technology is. But to what extent technology can really replace that what lawyers do? And to what extent that what lawyers do today are things which lawyers should do today or whether other people should do that and lawyers should focus and concentrate on that, what they're really good at. Th that is very much up in the air and subject to, to discussions. It's interesting, I, today I sat together with a colleague and we are thinking about a new book project and it would be called Legal Tech Success Stories. Mm -hmm. And we have to do some research, but we wouldn't be surprised that the number of success stories, so of real changes, severe changes in law firms or in-house legal companies is not that great. Maybe we are surprised and find more good and interesting examples, but I think the legal profession is still more traditional than innovative. You know, when I when I had the opportunity back when we could all travel uh, a year ago last summer and visited the UK and London and visited with a number of law firms, I was struck by the the emergence of these incubators, right, in inside of uh, uh, law firms. Uh, a number of firms had, uh, global firms principally, mm -hmm. although with offices, of course, in London, had developed these, which sometimes we would call in the US skunk works. I don't know if there's any analogy in in the German language for that, but just think about them as right, as you know, about the kind of pods within these firms that were really working on innovative yeah. technology and all of that. Is that development more widespread, including uh, kind of initiatives on the continent? And do they have, do they have any, any uh, success? I should mention that our, our mutual friend, Dan Katz, once described this as, as innovation by press release. 
with respect to a number of these of these firms. I'm afraid that that Dan is right. I mean, there are there are some of the big English firms. One has to say that this is more something of the English firms, like you know, Ellen Overy, Freshfields, right. with their centers in London and their very strong offices in Germany. The German offices, if they want or not, they sort of have to comply with the innovative power of the center. And that's the reason why the English firms and all the firms from the magic circle have these incubators. But it all started with a truly international firm, and that was Denton's. Mm-hmm. They sort of paved the way, and, and then all the English firms followed suit. And today, another very innovative international firm would be Baker McKenzie, who do a lot right. with technology. But it's, you know, it's very often to not to miss a major development. It's a bit like when the big magic circle firms went into startups when the dot-com boom came up. And the, all these startups, of course, couldn't pay the ridiculous bills of the Linklaters of this world. And then all the English firms would take shares of these companies, hoping that one of these would turn out to be a unicorn. I think it never happened, but still with incubators, it's a bit the same. You leave people play around and you send your associates to be part of that, hoping that there falls something from the table which you could use. But it's not part of a strategic, say, a strategic direction of plan to say we are changing our products and our way of delivering services to clients. And for that purpose, we have this group of people working on software and processes and workflows. It's more of, let's see what gets out of it. And it's not very expensive. Mm-hmm. So you, you have your room anyway, and right. your empty spaces, you give it to these people, and that's it. If you want to be a little cynical about it too, you, uh, you know, it's a playground, as it were, for young yes. associates who might want yeah. to pursue uh, chances actually, of innovation. It looks like a playground. It, right. it, it looks like a program. If you, if you go to a very prominent U.S. firm in their Frankfurt offices, they have a lounge which looks like whether, so as if Google and Facebook and Apple would have their, their, their German company all put together. And it, it looks just like people think the Silicon Valley looks like. Right, uh, you right. know, like lounge dike and f- lounge and fruit. Ping pong and tables. <laughs> ping pong tables. And it's a bit of a part of the future but that is more of a that's a pilot thing it's not standard it's mm-hmm. not so if you would ask lawyers how do you want to work most of them would say i need my individual room i need right. my my quiet atmosphere to work and actually quietly i'm looking at the corner room and trying how to move closer to the corner room yeah. so, the ambition of the corner office the ubiquitous the corner, corner office. office yeah it's yeah. it's still an important part and stage in your career. Yep. So uh, this is fascinating. I want to return to, to this and also talk a bit about Bucerius, but let's take a break. Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use Logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter, and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com 
forward slash LTN. Increase productivity and profitability through Acumas.com. Acumas provides cost-effective and reliable annuities management while keeping customer satisfaction at the helm of the action. With 40 years of excellence in the field of IP renewals, Acumas understands how quickly annuities can become burdensome for clients who would prefer their focus elsewhere. Contact info at acumas.com or visit acumas.com to discover how you can benefit from a management solution tailored to your needs. Welcome back. I'm talking to Marcus Hartung, a, a distinguished lawyer, legal consultant about uh, innovation and change in law and law firms. I, I want to focus back on uh, on Europe. Well, we've been talking about Europe. Marcus, I want to ask you about something I observed. Again, this was uh, several months ago and, and uh, certainly hit the newspapers both in Europe and uh, in the United States. And this was a decision out of France, uh, again, about a little, little over a year ago in which the French, I may, I may get the facts a little off, but I think it was the French Constitutional Court had issued a ruling, very, very significant, or maybe it was through legislation, but basically to put, put the hammer down on the use of data analytics and AI to predict, predict decisions of judges. Uh, you mm-hmm. recall that, uh, that development yeah. in France, and it caused, caused a bit of a firestorm. It's what, what's going on, and, and, and the French rationale, which you could explain probably better than I did, is that this was looking under the robes, as it were, of judges in a way that was quite deleterious and problematic. And I wonder now, a year or so later, how, how advanced that, that move has been. Has there been more developments in that regard uh, outside of France and Germany and other countries, or was that sort of something that was more unique to the French legal system? That was something of the French legal system, and it was not a verdict handed down by the Constitutional Court. It was a new law which had a ban on using AI to analyze verdicts if the names of the judges were visible and the names of the judges would also be subject to this analysis via AI software. And that was to protect the judges. Now, to start with, you have just to realize that the Europeans and data protection, that is an amour fou. You know, we are so crazy about protecting our data and, and, and not using our data. I mean, we are all at Facebook and social media and spread our data around. But when it comes to, to business, we are very strict with regard to data protection. And the protection of individual rights. So whereas it seems to be in the United States a good and common standard to have transparency in court files and in... Uh, say, patent office files, so you can do research and can use predictive analytics software. In Germany or in other European countries, other than France, you wouldn't even have access to all these files and verdicts. France is different, and that was the reason why they sort of had to build up a hurdle for those who wanted to use AI software. You know, it for us, it shows that we still have a very irrational way of dealing with information and what we could get of get out of data. So we don't leverage from all the the richness and wisdom which is in data and which we could leverage with using software, using artificial intelligence, making decisions more predictable, which we all would hope for. And not to say if you go to court, it's like sailing on high sea. You never know what comes out. 
But then we again, we lean back and say, no, we don't want to use software. We, we sort of limit ourselves to the human capabilities of the brain to understand and systematize and analyze software only with human power. There is actually a discussion in Germany whether court rulings should be uh, made accessible to the public. And there is a project of the EU Commission mm-hmm. pushing European member states to publish their verdicts in a machine-readable format. Of course, every member state would say, oh, yes, great idea, we will do it. And in the end, it will take many, many years before we really have access to machine-readable verdicts and decisions of the European member states. But this French example is a perfect example of how we Europeans deal with data and why we look at the United States and China and sort of shrugging say, well, they don't have any data protection. So they may make progress with artificial intelligence software, but we have data protection. Maybe this is bizarre, this question coming from me, but but I focus on your use of the term irrational. I'm tempted to ask, but but maybe Europe is ahead of the rest of the world because of its value and privacy in a way that, whether you're talking about China, United States, Russia, or whatever, seem to put much less uh, of, of an emphasis emphasis on that. So maybe maybe the Europeans are onto something with the GDPR and, and those kinds of things. I, I agree. So if 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 you got the impression that I'm against data protection, then then I I wouldn't have made my point correctly. I'm not saying that I would love to live in a state where the government knows everything about me and has access to my privacy. Actually, there is no privacy. I don't want that. What I'm saying in Europe is that we, by just being so scary when it comes to artificial intelligence and the power which is in this software, if you combine it with big data and start to search for patterns and these things, we are so scary that we only very slowly start the process of saying, how can we responsibly make use of artificial intelligence software. In the judiciary, for example, if you talk today about AI in the judiciary, you will get all the typical traditional reactions by, no, we can't do that. The judiciary has to be, you know, verdicts have to be done by people. That is part of the constitution. Just coming from judges, those in the judiciary or, or society more generally? No, no, no. This is coming from judges. And, 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 from, and from academics, because it's written in the Constitution that the judiciary is trusted to people, uh, so to the judges and not to any software. Today, so accepting what software can do and how software can, could support judges for, say, augmenting for that what they do, of course, this has some problems as long as you don't know how a software comes to a certain result. So that's the point of biased algorithm and and all these things. But I would be very happy if we would have achieved in Europe the stage of discussing that on that level and find ways how to sort of ring fans the dangers which are in an uncontrolled use of AI. But at the moment, we are still in the infant stage of saying, oh, my God, look at the United States, what they do with their Compass software, where they you know, jail all the people because they are just black and living in the wrong street because just the software decided that they should go to jail and the others not. Let's not get close to it. 
Well, this is an observation. You've it's possible you and I have even had this discussion. But one of the things that struck me struck me about the you know quite useful and important conversation about debiasing you know biased algorithms and the difficulties. The ProPublica report that you referenced that talks about mm-hmm. racial discrimination. The baseline that we compare problems of uh, of bias and algorithms to is human decision making, which we know are filled with biases, <laughs> right and prejudice. <laughs> Right. And, and certainly has a black box quality to, to characteristics. So it's, yeah. it's always compared to what? Yeah. And that is, you know, if we would have a tradition that only a certain completely logical and rational procedure would come to a certain judicial decision. And now we would propose a reform saying, look, we trust it to one single person. We give our fate in the hands of one individual and he will come down with a fair and just decision. People would say, you must be mad. How can you do this? You know that people are so different, whether it's Monday or or Friday. You can't do this. But we feel more comfortable from a tradition. And I think it's part of our DNA. We can accept flaws and mistakes done by people done by software, it, it, is, it is a different thing. We have no history and we have no, we have no experience in dealing with that. Right. We know only movies where software, like 2001, the Stanley Kubrick, you know, and we have this, sure. this software saying this conversation doesn't have any further purpose or so on, goodbye. And then the human being is in front of the computer and there is no way through. I think that is deeply in our, in our soul of it. We never want to see it like this. And that is sort of over our discussion on the use of software. And that is very much in this example from the French, uh, of the French decision. As I listen to you, Marcus, I, I detect a sense of, I wouldn't call it necessarily optimism, although there's some optimism in in what you say, but uh, almost inevitability, which is to say a confidence that whether you're talking about big law firms, global law firms, or uh, the judiciary, traditionally the holdouts in this regard, that it's inevitable that there'll be a penetration of technology, data analytics, and big data. And the question is how, and the question is when, but it's going to happen. Is that yes. is that a fair characterization of your position? Yeah, it's going to happen. It's not just a question of young and old, but I think many young lawyers are more open to technology and what technology can do. And I think it is inevitable and we have to do everything to do that, what we humans can do by looking rationally and intelligent at a certain set of facts and find the right way to deal with these issues and not, you know, to shy away and say, no, it's too dangerous. We can't invent cars because they are too dangerous. We can't invent rockets because they are too dangerous. We can't make use of software because that's too dangerous. That is sort of neglecting reality and what technological development will do. And we can't just turn away and turn our back to that and hope that it will pass on. It won't happen. Do you think, looking over the last 10-ish years, uh, you mentioned the financial crisis or a little uh, 10 years past that, and 2013 you also mentioned, have you seen more collaboration across countries and, and opinion leaders in different systems, Europe and beyond, 
uh, or less collaboration? What's the what's the direction look like in terms of the kinds of uh, of synergistic initiatives that you and I would agree are necessary to really advance this movement uh, worldwide? You you mean you mean the 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 technological development in the legal profession and and and. And right, and its application. So are we seeing more, uh, you know, uh, European unions more mature than it was a dozen years ago? We're not going to talk about foreign policy here. So that would be a whole nother podcast about U.S. policy. Yeah. I'm asking from the from the vantage point of, I mean, China, of course, has emerged as an enormous uh, actor. So yeah. we have optimism that we'll see more collaboration. From non-governmental organizations, I see that certain universities start to exchange information programs, people with regard to the digitalization of the legal profession and how the training and education of students has to change on a very small scale. But look at Chicago, for example. Chicago is highly innovative with that, what they are doing with universities all over the world, including the series, for example. On the uh, level of governmental collaboration, I see the European Union as a very good thing because they are applying pressure to, by nature, traditional member states. That is a good thing. What I'm missing is a collaboration on an international or global level, say, between the United States, Europe, and China, that, that, uh, on, and, and Russia as well. Th- that doesn't happen, which is a pity. I mean, when people get together in G20 or G8, it is about economic things, but I don't remember any summits of, of, of all the important states talking about technology and how technology could turn the societies for the better. Maybe I missed something, but I don't recall uh, any of the recent summits. That's been my impression as well. Certainly those of us who, who are in the, you know, in the uh, ivory tower of academia, as it were, uh, are aware of of international uh, conferences and some you know more globally uh, facing research, but we're we're only academics, right? And the penetration of that into public policy is a different a different matter. Mm-hmm. Before before we end, I, I do want to t- take us back to this invention, if I can call it that way, creation of yours, and that is Pusarius and the program Pusarius uh, Center on the Legal Profession. So t- uh, take us through the sort of what was the thinking behind that? And now that you're looking back on it, what, a decade in, how that's going? Pusarius is a law school and they and the law school does what normal law school does. They train and educate law students. But Pusarius always, I mean, it's the only privately funded law school in Germany. All other law schools are publicly funded at the universities. And Pusarius always was aware that they were training and educating people for a time which lies seven or eight years ahead. So you you have to know now what people may need in about five to seven to six years. But there was no intelligence on legal markets and the development of legal markets. And that was the time Butzerius had had introduced a sort of leadership program bit of a copycat of the Harvard Business School leadership program, and it was it turned out to be very successful. And, and then the decision was taken to found this center, to have a center which does not just facilitate training sessions, but generates knowledge and does research. 
in order to be the first point to go to for, say, uh, governments, law firms, in-house legal teams, if they want to know something about the development of the legal markets and to better design the legal curricula to provide better legal training for the students. So that was the idea why to have this center, which was not a legal chair, you know, we didn't teach law. We only dealt with economics. Why would Sirius thought that this center has to be part of the law school? And it's now, yeah, it was founded in, in 2010. And, and, and today it's a, without any saying, integral part of Butzerius Law School. And everyone looks at Butzerius and says, yes, that's, that's the normal combination, which only can happen at a private law school. It would never happen in a university. Well, I don't, I, 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 please don't take this the wrong way when I make an observation about German higher education, which is above my pay grade, but it wouldn't have been expected to emerge from a university or a law school on the continent, right? Just the reasons you say, not a tradition of private education, not known for interdisciplinary work. And actually, that's not fair. Not known for the kind of interdisciplinary work that yeah. connects academia with the profession. But nonetheless, it happened there. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you really have to say you, you need an institution which has an open mind. And then you need individuals who are just crazy and have an idea and, and really want to want to bring it to life. So it's not the institution which is as such so innovative that they would have founded such a center. But it was a great platform with, and we were surrounded by people with a very open mindset who didn't really understand what we were doing there. But the dean of Butzerius at that time, that was Harald Wenzler, a highly innovative guy, he said, let them do. You know, it was a bit of a playground for us. And then professors realized what we were doing and how their students were interested in that what we were doing and researching and that was for them the time to see oh that may be an important part and we didn't we were not part of their funding you know we we were right. always we have always been in self-financing center so the professors didn't have to compete with us on any fundings and that made them probably also welcome now i know 10 years in that it has a, a very strongly global presence and it's outward facing in, a, in, a, in important ways in terms of the faculty who teach in the program and all of that. Was that the vision from the very beginning? That is it be, be let's yes. say, trans-German in, in, yeah. in, its, in its focus? Um, that, was, that was part of the founding idea of the Bucerius Law School, not just to be another law school teaching German law. It was mandatory part for the students that they have to go abroad, that Butzerius Law School had a network of international universities, that people learned international law. And when the German students are going abroad, international students come on the campus on Butzerius and learn German and European and international law. So it was always looked at being part of a more and more growing global community of people and Butzerius wanted to be a part of that. They wanted to be in the same league like the big international names, realizing, of course, that if you compete about sponsors and brand and, you know, where come the important professors from, 
You can't just compete with Munich and Heidelberg, which are very fine universities. You have to start to compete with the with Chicago, with Harvard, with Stanford. That's the league you want to be in. Right, right. Let me ask you one question before before I let you go. Let us both go, and that is circle out all the way back to what I asked at the beginning about uh, what we've seen in the last 20, 25 years. At a number of junctures, you've pointed out the important role of what I would call the regulatory ecosystem, right? The how, how accepting or obstacle creating is the regulatory infrastructure in various countries to these kinds of innovations. And, and again, if I'd ask you to take the lens out a little bit and, and, and say from a European perspective in particular, how uh, confident are you that regulatory authorities, especially on the continent, are going to allow, permit, or even, even facilitate the kinds of developments and emerging developments and use of new technologies and the like in order to uh, in order to advance innovation that is hard to say i mean what i can say is it is not a very rapid process now that the britons will leave the eu one of the major driver of innovation is no longer part of the european member states maybe a sigh of relief for all the continental bars and regional bars but there are different levels of regulation in the European member states. Some of the member states are more liberal when it comes to unauthorized practice of law, for example. So Germany is very strict, can be compared with many states in the United States. Other, other German countries like the Scandinavian countries are more liberal. And the train is not going towards more regulation. The train is going to allow more uh, for more liberal reforms, more structural reforms, more looking at what is happening in the United States with these reforms in Utah and in Arizona. Of course, this resonates and the German Ministry of Justice is with interest looking what is happening there. And Interesting. But in, in the end, it will be one of the national constitutional courts or the European Courts of Justice handing down a verdict that a certain piece of regulation is no longer in line with European law. So it's by tradition, it's the judiciary which drives the liberalization of the legal profession. Tradition of self-regulation that, that yeah. exists in, in... Yeah. I mean, you know, Turkeys don't vote for Christmas, and that applies to lawyers as well. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's a great note to end it. I, I also am impressed. I think we've got some some news from this podcast as well. Your comment in passing that uh, that some German authorities are interested in what's going on in in Utah and Arizona is it will be of great interest to folks in Utah and Arizona in particular. But we had a wonderful and far reaching discussion. We could talk talk uh, on and on. But I want to take the opportunity to thank. Our sponsors, certainly, and, and Legal Talk Network for sponsoring this program, and especially uh, my distinguished guest, uh, Marcus Hartung. Thank you very much for joining in this wonderful discussion, and I am uh, pleased to uh, pleased that we've had this show. If listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you, Marcus? You reach me via email, of course, and just visit my homepage is markushartung.com, Markus Hartung in one word, and you'll find all the information you want to have on that homepage. It's in German and English. Feel free to visit me and you'll find my mobile number and my email address. Get in contact with me if there are any questions you might have on issues we have talked about. 
Great. Well, I encourage you to do so. Uh, lastly, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dan Rodriguez signing off for Law Technology Now. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.